Hi, I'm Alex from the news team and welcome to Jack's Viral Podcast. Here at Jack, we've been looking at the weird and wonderful ways that local people have been using the coronavirus outbreak and social distancing as a reason to bring the community together, while of course staying two metres apart. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to local charities, the police, Oxfordshire business experts, transport companies and a very cheery farmer. But we're going to start with local doctors, those on the front line fighting the virus, and a group of NHS workers from Oxford who are trying to raise money so they can buy personal protective equipment they're also trying to find any protective masks that might be kicking about at local businesses that have now closed. I spoke to Arman Sharma, one of the organisers of the fundraiser and an orthopaedic registrar at the JR. We have a two-pronged uh, strategy. Uh, we're raising funds on a uh, crowdfunding platform, GoFundMe, and, which is NHS Mask Now. And we're sourcing, we're raising funds to source a CE-marked uh, mask. Also, we, we are asking the businesses and the uh, other communities to donate their unused masks. And, and I'm very grateful for the response we had. We had uh, Mr. Matthew Vellacott, uh, who's a medical, uh, who's a managing director of Farrell Companies, and he's donated a substantial amount. And also Mr. Bear uh, of Edmondson Electricals, who's donated more than 100 face masks. Why are these masks so important? The uh, mask uh, and, and other protective equipment actually reduce uh, 3.4, if you want to be specific, uh, a reduction in virus, viral transmission. And the frontline staff has to be protected from the virus because they can themselves contract it and transmit this viruses to the patients. So we need to protect our frontline staff so, and hence we protect the nation. So you guys, are you really on the lookout for basic items, even things like ski masks and, and, and sportswear that could help? Well, not at the moment. I think, uh, I think we are focusing on a high quality grade uh, CE marked uh, mask. Uh, and why we want to get this message across is that some of the uh, businesses probably sourced these masks before uh, and those can now be fed into NHS supply lines uh, as they're not being currently used by those businesses and it can really make a difference to the uh, frontline staff and save lives. There seems to be a, a huge outpouring of support for the NHS during this crisis. Do you think that will be reflected in, in the donations and, and, and similar funds that have been set up, similar ones to this? Well, we are at amazingly grateful to the uh, nation and the people who have been supporting uh, NHS. Uh, as you know from the campaign, they've been clapping for us and there have been uh, utmost uh, support from the other campaigns. Uh, they, have, they have had a fantastic response, such as in London, they have raised more than £700,000 uh, for sourcing the frontline staff. And if we can collaborate all across and on different platforms, we can actually make a huge difference to, uh, to the, to the frontline staff and the nation itself. Um, what is the mood like among the NHS staff locally at the moment? Well, these are unprecedented times, but I have to say to you, uh, there is a lot of camaraderie between uh, NHS professionals. I have personally seen people volunteering to go and, uh, and help out in COVID-19 wards. They are taking on extra roles, supporting each other, and, and, and we all are working towards containing or mitigating the uh, effects of COVID-19. 
That was Armin Sharma, a doctor at the JR. Their campaign to buy protective equipment is on GoFundMe and it's called NHS Masks Now. Next up, we have an emergency appeal for funding from a charity in Abingdon which provides horse riding as a therapy for the disabled. They've had to shut because of the lockdown, but of course they're still having to pay for the upkeep of their animals. Joe Summerbell spoke to Chair Anne Barlow from Riding for the Disabled. We've got 96 riders, all of whom benefit hugely, not just from the physical point of view, but also from the mental point of view. Some, a lot of our children are teased at school, have a really tough time. Our RDA group, our centre, is a haven for these children and they absolutely love it. And you've had to launch an appeal because, as you said, your your annual costs are around £90,000. So with everything that's going on at the moment with, with the lockdown, what's that meant for your charity? Well, it means that all our fundraising, and we do a lot of fundraising, um, has closed down. And we have a, a food fair that raises a lot of money for us at the end of April. Uh, that's had to be cancelled. I mean, everything has been cancelled. Everything. And for you, it's not just as simple as shutting down, I suppose, because you've got those horses and ponies that you still have to look after. Well, yes, and horses and ponies all need to be fed. Because we're not riding, they're not actually, the ponies aren't being used for the purpose for which they're supposed to be used. The, the cost is exactly the same. Everything's exactly as it normally is. We have to pay the staff to look after them. And the feed, fees and stuff is, is the same as it always is. Are you worried that once this kind of pandemic eases or is over, are you worried that there may not be a future for the charity? Oh, no, 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 no. There will always be a future. Always, always, always be a future for the charity. But it's a huge national thing. And there are groups all over the country. I mean, over 500 groups all over the country. And it's, it's a very, very important charity. We will, we will do everything we can. We won't let it go down. We will fight tooth and nail. I mean, we won't let it. Good. And, and that's exactly why you've launched this appeal, isn't it? Tell, tell us about the fundraising appeal that you've now got going on. Well, it's an amazing appeal. I mean, it was put in, uh, what you call it, at the top of £300. And then suddenly we realised that it just shows what it means to people. Because now we are up to 4000 and something. We've put the, the goal at 6000 now. And hopefully we will get it and hopefully it'll go on. Are you surprised by people's generosity at the moment? Absolutely staggered. We are completely staggered. We are extremely grateful. And not only have we had fantastic donations towards the group on this appeal, but we've also had donations of hay for the ponies. We've had a lot of hay. And, you know, that's an enormous thing for people to do. People have been incredibly generous. And we are incredibly grateful. Anne Barlow there from Riding for the Disabled. While lots of people have been pulling together during this national crisis, there have been some absolute wrong-uns who have been trying to make money out of it. There's been a rise in online scammers trying to part people with their cash with the promise of tax refunds and fake cleaning services. Joe Summerbell spoke to Jodie Kerman from Oxfordshire's Trading Standards. So at times like this, it often brings out the very best in people, but unfortunately it also gives room for people to exploit the situation. We're seeing locally and nationally a range of different scams reported. This can be around offering cures or treatments for coronavirus when there is none. People calling on your door, either as a good Samaritan offering to go and do shopping and taking money but not returning, saying that you need to have your house decontaminated. Lots of emails and texts 
which are claiming um, the ability to get refunds on things like council tax or on your utilities, um, particularly on the back of a government's announcement around different support packages for people. Unfortunately, this gives scammers a great opportunity because it, it's high in the public consciousness. People kind of are a heightened awareness of it. So the scammer almost has a foot in the door to use that as a method um, for their scam. It's quite incredible to and shocking to think that, as you said earlier, at a time when people are feeling quite anxious and vulnerable and, and maybe desperate for some people, that scammers are targeting those people that maybe at this time are fit a bit more vulnerable to taking up this offer for help. And actually, we're all more vulnerable at this time. And people often ask, well, what are the latest scams? And what's interesting is scams will constantly change they're constantly looking for a, a new story, if you like, that they can use. But there are some common hallmarks to a scam, which are quite often present no matter the individual situation. So they often come out of the blue with unsolicited offers or claims or warnings. They really rely on taking away somebody's time to think, because when, when we're rushed, you know, we don't always make the right decision. They um, often have claims of either reward so things like money back, prizes, they rely on fear and intimidation around things like you're going to get fined or you're going to get prosecuted, your account will be closed. And scammers don't want you to talk to other people. They want you to try and keep this secret. They don't want anybody who might come into this and say, yeah, maybe you should take a step back and, and pause before doing it. And so have there been some of these cases in Oxfordshire and reported to trading standards and how many? They have. It's difficult to know exact numbers because quite often somebody might be reporting something they've heard that has happened rather than something that has directly happened to them. What we also know is actually only about 5% of scam victims will report that the scam has happened. It can be for different reasons. For some, they may have lost a relatively small amount of money and, and, and moved on from it. For others, it could be around shame and embarrassment which stops them reporting. So we have seen an increase, um, but Actually, that is probably just one small part of a much, much bigger picture. And if I was going to give just a couple of pieces of advice, um, because there's a whole range of different things people can do to protect themselves, and there's some good um, information on, on our website. But if I give a couple of things which might work in most situations, and the first one is to just stop and take five. Don't be rushed. Just being able to pause not make an immediate decision, have time to think, can have a really big impact on what you then do next. And also, just listen to your instincts. Don't be afraid to hang up or put it in the bin, delete the email or shut the door. Jodie Cameron there on what to look out for. With so many of us in lockdown in Oxfordshire, businesses face an uncertain future. The government has said they'll be forking out £330 billion to support businesses in the UK. A local expert we've spoken to says local companies need that money as soon as possible. Here's the CEO of the Oxfordshire Enterprise Partnership, Nigel Tipple, speaking to our reporter, Emma Kerwin. What we've been looking to try and do is make sure that the information around that package is disseminated as quickly as possible to uh, to our workforce uh, across the whole of Oxfordshire. So the announcement is, is clearly welcomed uh, and we're looking at how quickly we can get that information out to the, the vast army of self-employed workers that we have 
um, across the county, um, alongside the other interventions that, that are already there. So the you know the job retention scheme uh, for existing employees, uh, and also the business loan interruption scheme. So um, really welcome announcement. Uh, we need to get that information out in in very quick order, uh, and we're using our social media platforms, our website, to support government's uh, dissemination of that message out to business. Do you think the time frame to deliver it in June is good enough? Um, I, I mean, it's difficult. I, I, the quicker we can get that that resource to businesses, the better. Um, I, you know, the, the government have, have made uh, the resource available with a with a claim deadline or, or first claim deadline in in June. Um, I'm sure businesses would like uh, access to resource much more quickly, uh, but we, we have a system that we can work through. Um, we'll make sure that that's uh, supported as much as possible. And I, I think, given the complexity of what we're dealing with, it's you know from from a business and and indeed from a wider community perspective, um, the pace at which things are changing um, is is so significant that we really do have to focus on what can we do in the here and now. Uh, to help businesses and how do we then, working with them, look at what the next six months actually looks like and nine months and 12 months. Um, we've got to help them survive in, in the first instance. So the, as quickly as possible, uh, we'll help them get those uh, uh, access to those uh, grants and, and resource available. Um, and then we'll, we'll need to look at how we can continue to support them over a longer term. I understand that you're holding workshops as well. Um, can you just talk to me a little bit about what they're doing and, and how you're hosting them? Yeah, that's right. So what we've had uh, running through our growth hub for some time now is uh, a, a series of programs, so innovation support for business, uh, where we've got uh, access to grant funding, our Escalate program, a whole range of business one-to-one -one advice uh, and guidance and support. Um, those traditionally have been run as uh, standard workshops and we've moved very quickly. In fact, the team moved very quickly early in this process to move those onto an online platform uh, to allow us to use uh, social media and, and uh, web-based uh, activity to actually keep those moving. Um, so those are live. They're on our website. Uh, businesses can sign up for those. Our grant programs are still open. Um, and if you look at the uh, the Go Create grant, for instance, that's there to support investment in both technology-rich but non-technology-focused businesses. Um, it could be uh, investment into new products and service development technology, um, looking at things like supporting advanced manufacturing capabilities or early product validation. So. Again, you can you can see some real opportunities and synergies there with new that, that could be opening up for businesses who, at the minute, are looking at, at diversification plans. And, and as you know, there are many examples in Oxfordshire of our technology businesses being able to respond quickly to coronavirus challenges, uh, whether that's looking at, uh, at the research around the coronavirus itself or looking at um, you know, ventilators and a other range of, uh, uh, of products that we can help to quickly move towards our expertise in 3D printing, a whole range of other things, really significant. One such business that's had to adapt to these unusual times is Bampton-based Shandy salesman Shandy Shack. With so many cancellations of local festivals, they've had to think on their feet. The business is put under extra pressure as well by the fact two of the three founders are also part-time NHS doctors working in A&E and cardiology in Oxford hospitals. Joe Somerville spoke to Tom Stevens, a founder of Shandy Shack. 
So we've used food festivals as a way to um, get our shandies into into people's hands and get direct feedback from them as to what they think and have manipulated our recipe on an ongoing basis. We've booked in, well, had booked in um, loads of different festivals in the local region spreading out across the south of England for summer um, as our kind of main revenue stream and our main way of getting Shandy to um, to the people. And um, unfortunately, with with all the changes that have happened in coronavirus, certainly May and June, um, all our festivals have been cancelled which not only is disappointing in that the opportunity of going them to the has lost, but we've also lost some cash in the deposits that we've uh, we've put down. Essentially, our summer's been turned on its head. So you had to obviously move things online, and that's what you're kind of trying to push that side of things now, are you? Yeah, definitely. So we know that um, everyone's spending a lot of time in their houses. Everyone's evenings are now you know very free which is probably unusual for a lot of people and along with that the supermarket shelves are bare of any half decent drinks so we thought why not introduce um, a subscription concept so we've really pushed hard on that so um, monthly subscriptions to uh, to people's doors and all the couriers across the country who are working really hard to keep their services going during this tough time means that we've um, we're in a great position to um, ship our shandies direct to people's doors um, and we've had an amazing response um, everyone seems to be getting behind local businesses which is albeit very few positives coming out of the um, out of the pandemic but we've been amazed and really flattered by the kind of response that we've got good and and do you think with the online deliveries and subscription side of things do you think that will be enough for you guys for shandy shack to survive the next few months we were concerned, um, sort of certainly two or three weeks ago, um, that it might not be and that we were going to have a really tough time and going to have to make some tough decisions. But the response has been so good that if sales continue to grow at the rate they are, um, I think we're looking like we'd be able to survive and potentially actually turn all the uh, all the negative energy around coronavirus into a potential positive and kind of pivot our business and move forward. Aside from that, Tom, yourself and one of your colleagues as well, one of the co-founders, you're actually doing something very important on the side as well, aren't you? Because you both yeah. work as NHS doctors. We do, Joe. So me and Fred live um, live double lives. Um, there's three co-founders, me, Fred and Ed. Um, me and Fred are both NHS doctors. Fred works in uh, the A&E department and um, I work in cardiology and uh, we've been working as doctors for two or three years and when we started the Shandy Shack we went part-time to try and explore something new and working hard on both fronts. I mean Fred has just turned his contract into a full-time contract to try and help out on the front line and I'm lucky that I've got a bit of time off now to focus on Shandy Shack before everything gets very busy in the coming weeks with coronavirus. So we uh, we are doing our best on both fronts and we're really passionate about what we're doing down at Shandy Shack. But clearly in this time, you know, using our skills as doctors is, is hugely important and helping everyone out on the front line is, is what we want to do. Now from local businesses to Bobby's on the beat. The police aren't immune from COVID-19 with some of them self-isolating or showing symptoms. Ranks have been thinning in recent weeks. That's why Thames Valley Police are urging recently retired staff to rejoin the force and lend a hand at this time of crisis. I spoke to Deputy Police and Crime Commissioner Matthew Barber about the appeal. So this is something you'll have seen across the country with um, with other forces taking similar steps. We're asking uh, recently retired officers or those who've left the force in the last couple of years uh, to come back on a temporary basis to rejoin the front line 
to try and give us a bit more resilience that, that we need um, as we deal with the coronavirus outbreak. And why why is this step necessary? Just it sounds like an obvious question, but so we're, we're obviously um, the police aren't immune from the from the impacts uh, of this virus, uh, and we have a number of police officers who who uh, have contracted the virus themselves, uh, and of course they have their own. Um, caring responsibilities and some officers are having to self-isolate at home if another member of their their family has it um so inevitably that affects the 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 workforce that we have available um to to deal with crime and to to help to enforce the uh, restrictions that are being put in place to to protect us all uh this is um about establishing if you like a a reserve force uh, about making sure that we have the resilience going forward we're uh, we're not at the point of of needing um uh, needing to activate it yet but we we know we've had a lot of expressions of interest from recently retired officers uh, who live in the Thames Valley who want to help out so we put in place a system to make sure that we can we can get everybody uh, on board as soon as we need them so if there's a recently retired officer listening to this and they they want to play their part what can they do what's the best thing uh, yeah well we we would welcome back uh, any recently uh, retired officers PCSOs particularly people who do, do with uh, contact management or have worked in the control rooms uh, but also police staff uh, and there's details uh, of that available on the uh, on the police Twitter account I understand that the the leeway period is sort of two years is there any given that so at the moment we're we're looking at two years um, in the case of Thames Valley some other areas have, have, have done different things but uh, obviously the advantage of people who have most recently retired um, is that they are they're up to speed with with current practices in the in the force. Um, they uh, they've had training much more recently than others. Uh, we're not at the moment at that stage where we need to go back uh, further for people who've been uh, who've been out of service uh, for longer. But of course, there will be potentially people with specific skills, uh, and in the time of national crisis, we will seek to utilise whatever skills we can. And just finally, how important a role could these recently retired officers coming back in? How important a role could they play in in local policing during this crisis? I, I think they could be key. Uh, clearly, everybody, whether it's police officers or staff, uh, play a huge role. And I think we mustn't forget that uh, this is a, a health-led crisis. We are uh, the, the police are there to support the NHS in the work uh, that they're doing, which is incredibly important at the front line. But we still need to make sure that that we keep on top of crime. We deal with often hidden issues such as domestic abuse, uh, which may increase as people are uh, are kept in their homes, uh, and, and also to make sure that people are. Um, are abiding by the restrictions that the government have put in place because they are there to protect everybody. Deputy PCC Matthew Barber there and any recently retired staff are being urged to email COVID-19 Resilience Bank at thamesvalley.pnn.police.uk. One of the unsung heroes of this crisis have been the public transport companies. Last week, the Oxford bus company said their passenger numbers were down 90%, but they're not going to stop running their services because they've got to get key workers where they need to be. Our reporter Emma Cohen spoke to the company's managing director, Phil Southall. We're having to uh, reduce the frequencies that we run our services at um, again. Um, basically, 90% um, of our passengers are no longer travelling with us. So the 10% that are left are, are key workers. We very much appreciate that we have to continue to run a service uh, for um, key workers, the important folks in the NHS and, and others to try and get to work to keep the country moving. But the reality is we can't keep running at the frequencies we have been. So we're looking to run a sort of 30-minute frequency on most of the core corridors with, with some enhancements where we can do that. I know you did touch upon it, but why are you making these key changes? Well, the changes have been done because um, 
we're not like other companies. We we can't just close down and 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 basically uh, not run uh, anything like like some other businesses are doing. We have to keep our services running for for key workers. But the the reality is that because passengers have gone down so much, uh, we're running these services at a loss now. So we are talking to government and indeed the uh, Oxford City Council and the other local authorities in Oxfordshire have sent a press release out encouraging the government to support us because in effect we can't run a service now without making a loss. So the service that we are running uh, is purely to keep uh, key workers going, the fabulous people in the NHS to, to be able to get to, to hospitals and, and, and others and, and therefore uh, we have to reduce the services as much as we can to, to be able to afford to keep them going for as long as possible. So people like in the NHS, they'll be taking priority then with these services? Well, what we've said to people in the NHS is we, we have to assume that the 10% of passengers that are left travelling are, are, are key workers, including those in the NHS. So, so what we've invited people to do who are key workers, um, including those who, who are working in the NHS, is to look at the services that we're going to offer. The information is on our website now um, and if those services don't meet their needs to contact us individually and we'll see what we can do and we've already had some people do that and we're trying to come up with uh, individual solutions for those that can't use the, the system and the frequencies that are on offer. How much of an impact do you think this outbreak is going to have on the Oxford Bus Company? Well, it's having a massive um, impact. Um, clearly, if 90% of your customers are no longer travelling because they're all following the advice, and that, that's quite correct, and they do follow that advice. But it's true to say that we can't continue running these services indefinitely without government support. So we are furloughing uh, around about 300 of our drivers um, from this coming weekend. Um, so, so we're following the government support in that regard. But that doesn't go far enough um, for bus companies, hence the... City Council and the industry generally is asking for more support because, in effect, we have to carry on running services at a loss um, and we're not being reimbursed for that. So we're asking for a support package in a similar way to the railways has received, which is whereby, on a temporary basis, the government can take responsibility for our costs and our revenues and we can agree a way forward for the government to, in effect, um, buy a set number of hours, which we can work with local authorities about, about what levels of service we can operate and get paid by the government to do it. Without that, I don't know how long we can continue the services um, in their current form. And something a little lighter to finish on. At 8pm last Thursday, like so many of us, Ben Wilson from West Oxfordshire was on his doorstep clapping for the NHS and key workers who were keeping us going. But the local farmer didn't think that was enough and wanted to show his gratitude a different way. So he jumped in his tractor, drove to his field near Woodstock, and I'll let him tell you the rest. Well, we had a little uh, clap in the village on uh, Thursday night at 8pm 8, 8 for the um, NHS, as did most of the country, uh, for all the frontline NHS staff out there. And I just... I saw another little clip the following morning from another farming company that had done something similar with tractors. Uh, and I thought, I know, I can have a bit of a play about in a little field here. And you had a little play about, you wrote something in your field. How big are the letters and what do they say? Uh, the letters are, it's the, the people that haven't seen the photograph, I've, I've cultivated or, or ploughed in layman's terms. Um, the letters NHS and a big love heart underneath it. And the letters are probably about 50, 50 or 60 metres tall. So uh, pretty big. And why did you feel the need? I mean, what motivated you? It's just a little pick-me-up for some of the people on the front line that perhaps uh, are feeling a little flat, a little low. Um, uh, hopefully it might just be a little bit of a shot in arm for them to let them know that there are other people out there thinking about them 
uh, and also working pretty hard to keep the systems and structures in place. And it seems to be something that's uh, resonated with local people, a load of people sharing it on social media. What have you made of the response to it? I've been quite surprised, actually. Uh, I sent it out to a, a couple of friends through various rugby clubs and uh, then tweets turned into other tweets. And then I had uh, Robert Courts, our local MP. Uh, he retweeted it last night. So that kicked off another round of tweets and retweets and likes and uh, everything like that. So it's all, all quite surprising, really. Do you think it reflects the local attitude, the national attitude towards the NHS at the moment? Yeah, I think it does. I think uh, I think they do a fantastic job. Um, they under under very very difficult pressures. I don't envy them. Put it that way. That's it for now, but we've got two previous viral podcasts online, so if you haven't heard them, they're worth a listen. You'll hear from experts on homeschooling, keeping your mental health in check, not drinking too much, and loads of helpful stuff like that. You can follow us on Twitter at JackFM News. There'll be another viral podcast on the way in the coming days as we've been talking to loads of local people about what's going on, so keep your eyes out. And until then, wash your hands and stay safe.